You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to Real Vision. It's Wednesday, October 28, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Real Vision's managing editor, Ed Harrison. Ed, welcome back. Yeah, uh, I was going to say looking good, and you were supposed to say feeling good, but actually, no, we're not feeling good at all today. Yeah, looking at U.S. equity markets, uh, it's hard to feel good. So right off the bat, we've had uh, a pretty ugly day. Numbers still bouncing around here a little bit. Uh, at the close, we were filming just after market close, uh, U.S. New York time. Dow off 3.4%, settling at 26,519. S&P off 3.53%, settling at 32.71. And the NASDAQ off 3.73%, barely holding the 11 handle, 11,004. Yes. Yeah, so very bad day. Actually, I think this is the fourth down day in a row. And, uh, you know, really the, uh, I think if you look at it from a macro perspective, it's all about the fact that in Europe, we were selling off already because of the coronavirus and restrictions and so forth. And then that selling continued into the U.S. And, uh, you know, these jitters have been going on now uh, for four days. This is the fourth day in a row that we're down. So this is, uh, we're now at a point where we can say that this is a real event. This is a problem. uh, And it's, it's definitely getting worrisome. Yeah, exactly. You know, just for a little bit of context around those numbers, S&P 500 closed last Friday at 3440. Uh here we are close of day Wednesday 3271. That's a change of minus 4.9%. Similar story on the Nasdaq closing last Friday at 11,548, now at 11,004 for minus 4.7%. Yeah, so I, I have to give a bit of a mea culpa here, uh, Ash, because uh, I I was going to get my Dow thirty thousand or uh, hat out, and uh, I was ready for uh, you know for us to be off to the races. Because you remember that I was saying September October was the moment of truth in terms of understanding you know the forward visibility in terms of do we have acceleration for continued um, uh, uh, continued recovery. And uh, we had jitters about that at the beginning of September. We had a correction in the NASDAQ, and it uh, that went away. So by a week, two weeks ago, I was saying that it doesn't look like uh, we're going to have any more jitters. I think that we've gotten out of this period, the September-October period, pretty well. And lo and behold, literally, the last week, we're back uh, to where we were before. So my whole thesis of September, October is back on the, the screen. Out of nowhere comes this whole uh, dynamic of shutdowns in Europe. Uh, and, 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 and that's really, for me, what's driving all of the volatility that we're seeing right now. Well, Ed, you know, I'm a great fan of your framework, and I always mentally extended October to at least November 3rd. I figured to the end of the election, that's really your time horizon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that the uh, Americans are doing a decent amount of navel gazing in terms of being totally focused in on what's happening in this historic presidential election. People are talking about a blue wave. Other people are talking about 
uh, you know, the Senate uh, going to the Republicans, et cetera. Uh, really, I think the real story now is in Europe. I, I would say, however, you know, just going back to what we were talking about on Monday, that yes, I think that there are scenarios in the in U.S. politics that aren't priced in. You know, yeah. for instance, a Trump win is not priced in. Uh, I don't think that a Senate, uh, uh, the Senate staying with the Republicans is priced in, and that's going to have a meaningful impact. But I don't think that the lead up to November the 3rd, as we're seeing it now in this level of volatility, is as a result of anything that's going on in the United States. Really, what's happening is all about uh, the situation in Europe and the fact that it's not just about the coronavirus cases, it's about the the actual policy response, that is, is, is lockdowns, that they are having lockdowns. I'd like to use, just for the uh, moment, just for today, I'd like to use Tony Greer's, uh, uh, his, his uh, narrative, which is, is that it's hysteria that in the United States, you know, as soon as November the 3rd is over, um, it's, going to, uh, it's going to go away, the whole narrative in the United States. Let's just say that that's actually true. In Europe, uh, the, the the hysteria has created lockdowns, uh, if you want to use it from Tony's perspective. And that's what's driving it. It's that the policy response shutdowns could potentially lead to a double-dip recession, and that's very negative for risk assets. Uh, could the same thing happen in the United States? Maybe. Uh, but uh, we'll just have to take a look and see. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about this uh, in some ways in kind of in four parts for a very long time. You have the actual events on the ground. You have the perception of the events on the ground. You have the economic impact. And then you have how various risk asset markets price the relative uh, risks and potential rewards. Uh, and so it's a pretty complicated calculus. But yeah, that's spot on in terms of what's happening in Europe right now, obviously, uh, very much the the center in terms of the news cycle in terms of what's happening with COVID. Look, uh, you know, Germany is closing bars and restaurants right now. Uh, France is talking about potentially a one month lockdown. And when you look right here in the United States, and I think we can pull up the charts first, the the trends in the numbers, and this is data from CDC. Uh, the trends in the case data. If you look at uh, not just the number of cases, but if you look at that critical seven-day moving average, you can see that what we're moving toward now is a, a fair third peak, and this is uh, this is something that's pretty uh, pretty significant in terms of case count. Now, the following chart uh, is an interesting one. This is uh, this is COVID uh, mortality, uh, and what you've seen is an increase uh, in the rate uh, of of mortality here in the U.S. from COVID, but as of yet, it hasn't yet approached. Uh, the level of steepness of the curve that we're seeing in rising rates. Now, obviously, that's a good thing. If you look at the, the those three peaks next to each other, what you can see uh, is that the second peak is higher than the first. Uh, and while the number of deaths rises uh, after the second peak in, in, uh, in case count, it doesn't rise nearly to the same level. That suggests Hopefully that we're getting better at treating it, that younger and healthier people are getting the disease uh, and that, uh, you know, potentially, and we won't know this because we haven't sequenced uh, these, uh, these, uh, the, the virus at that level yet. We'll figure this out as the months go by, but hopefully uh, it means that it's mutating in a way that's making it less deadly. Those would all be potentially good things. But when you look at that chart, obviously the infection rate is a leading indicator uh, ahead of the impact of the disease, which could unfortunately ultimately lead to mortality. So. This is definitely something to watch closely. I just see, as I look out on the, across the, the broad landscape of all of the things that are happening today, just a tremendous amount of risk 
uncertainty, uh, indeterminacy. Look, we're six days away uh, from an extraordinarily tense election. Uh, as I said to Tony yesterday, the one thing that I know for sure is that if we do have an outcome, meaning if we do have a clear winner, that half of the country is going to be very unhappy about it. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, that is the case. But, you know, let me go back to something uh, you were talking about with coronavirus, because I thought it was interesting. I was looking at a tweet from Christian Oldendahl, who is a European policymaker, uh, and he says that uh, uh, people seem to think that uh, lockdowns in Germany and France are similar. They're not. What he says, and I thought this was interesting, is that Germans are free to go anywhere. All businesses remain open except those uh, for social consumption, private social gatherings, and just uh, uh, restricted travel is just discouraged. Tourism uh, is banned. And his analysis is, is, is that the at the end of the day, the, the difference between Germany and France is actually that France waited longer in order to lock down. Than yeah. the Germans, the Germans, you know, even though it's coincident in time, the Germans haven't gotten up the curve in terms of the epidemic of uh, cases and hospitalizations and deaths relative to the French. And so the French are actually imposing a much more stringent lockdown because they're forced to do so because they waited longer. And I right. think that, you know, from the first wave, we know that the countries that locked down later uh, their public health outcomes were worse. And as a result, yeah. potentially they had to lock down more or suffer more deaths. That is, that includes the United States, of course. Uh, you know, that includes many countries in Europe. So uh, when we're, when we're talking about this, I mean, a lot of this is speculation, but I want to make a clear forward looking statement. Uh, I, you, you know, you can uh, timestamp it here. What's happening in Europe will happen in the United States, and uh, what's happening in uh, Europe will be delayed in the United States in the same way that there's a difference in delay between Germany and France. And the, and the outcome is going to be more deaths. I'm saying that right now uh, so that you know, there's no bones about it. I'm not, I'm not talking about hysteria or you know, rising case counts. I'm saying it, definitively we're going to have a tremendous epidemic level of deaths from COVID in this particular uh, shutdown. That's my view. Uh, and I think that Christian Oldendahl makes that very plain. And, and you know, just to sort of piggyback on that, I I've been saying this actually for quite some time because uh, a, a lot of this stuff is foreseeable in my, in my view. So uh, I wrote in, uh, at the end of May when we were uh, getting out of the first lockdown. This is what I said uh, on credit write-downs. I said, you know, I don't think full-scale lockdowns are politically viable anymore, given the massive private sector economic hit and government deficits they entail. I would go so far as to say they won't happen except in extremists. And that means uh, the potential for epidemic levels of viral spread and death are possible in second, third, and fourth waves until we build some sort of herd immunity, probably through a, a um, you know uh, a vaccine. Uh, it may not happen at all. Actually, we're now finding out. Uh, and I said that I find it hard to believe that we're going to get a decent recovery given the downside risks and the vi the policy in the viral fronts. Uh, I'm not saying it could can't happen. Uh, but the outline I just went through uh, points to some of the challenges. And so I ended out saying this, if we are left blindsided by a second post-lockdown wave, which happened, by the way, or a third fall winter coronavirus wave in the Northern Hemisphere, which is happening, by the way, and this is something I wrote in May, it's because we didn't prepare. Uh, the risks were there for all to see, and the deaths will have been preventable. 
policy errors matter and they cost lives. That's exactly what's happening right now. It was totally predictable. I said it five months ago, and it's 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 happening just as we expect it to happen. So when I say that the death tolls will be higher, I'm making a forward-looking statement. I'm saying I see what's happening right now in the United States, and we we are not just going to see cases rise. We're going to see hospitalizations and then deaths after that. And then the question becomes, what does that mean from the economic and the market perspective? And we can talk about that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. You know, that's a very powerful and sobering statement. Yeah. I mean, as I said, uh, it's not like I'm, I'm pulling this out uh, randomly. These are these are comments that I made in verbatim five five months ago. So the fact that it's playing out isn't because I'm a prescient in any way. It's because I'm I was listening to the data. I was coalescing what they were saying and thinking about given our policy responses in the past, what were likely to happen in the future. I think where the rubber hits the road in terms of our listeners uh, is what does that mean for uh, for the markets? Because as you said, there's a whole configuration of things in terms of uh, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks, the uh, COVID resistant stocks, how do they perform in a, 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 a market slowdown? Uh, if the government doesn't lock down, what happens then? Uh, do, uh, you know, does the economy still continue to, to take off? I mean, this is, this is what I think uh, is the, uh, uh, the, uh, here's what I would say. I would say that full scale lockdowns, they're not politically viable. That means that you can, you're going to get these epidemic levels of viral spread before you do lockdown or if you lockdown. And uh, ultimately, that's because a couple of weeks delay in responding vigilantly uh, to the coronavirus costs tens of thousands of lives. We've already seen that, and we're going to see it again. Uh, and so we've been hoping and praying all along that we wouldn't get to this worst case outcome. Europe has, and I'm, I'm predicting that the U.S. will. And... Um, I think that only after even worse public health outcomes in Europe will the U.S. have any sort of similar policy response. And my sense is, is, is that the tail risk of a double dip increases markedly as a result of that. So I yeah. think that consumers respond to uh, epidemic levels of, of death counts. Uh, they're not responding now because we're not there. But when we get there, there will be a response and it will be very negative. Yeah. You know, Ed, one of the things that I've appreciated about your analysis from the beginning is how nuanced it is. Uh, you know, one of the things that I find most disconcerting about the political place that we find ourselves in right now in the U.S. Uh, is everything has become totally bifurcated. Everything is totally binary. You know, you've seen a great deal of nuance. You've seen a great deal of uh, difference in the precise mechanism of implementation uh, around lockdown, how targeted they are when they begin, what they cut off, what they don't cut off. You've been, I think, prescient as well with pointing out the idea of lockdown fatigue and how that sometimes locking down more tightly than is necessary can create a backlash uh, that actually has the paradoxical opposite effect that it's intended to. So much of what we hear 
um, in traditional media uh, is is binary. It's, you know, if you're in this political party, you're opposed to the lockdown, you think it's terrible. If you're in this political party, you want more of the lockdown. It's just, it's such a, a, a binary, bifurcated way of looking at the world. And it's infinitely more nuanced than that. And, and the reality is, is that kind of thinking, when it becomes a question of politics and not a question of data, uh, the, 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 the people who suffer uh, are all of us. It's the entire country and it's the economy. Yeah, and, and certainly from a market's perspective, we suffer if we let the, uh, you know, the politics lead us as opposed to the data. Speaking right. of which, let me just say that uh, you know, Pinterest came out today, uh, beat earnings, they're up 20%. Ford came out, they beat earnings, they're up 5%. So this is on a day, this is after hours, a day where you know the markets were down three and a half to almost 4% across the board. What it says is, is, is that you know people aren't throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are actually companies that will outperform. Uh, so when you're thinking about this, you know, if you want to put a paradigm on it, how to think about the volatility, I think that you know it's a stock picker's market. There are places to, uh, to hide. Um, I just mentioned two specifically for right now, whether they have durable, uh, you know, long lasting growth is another uh, uh, thing. But, you know, there's there's uh, there's more ability at this particular uh, juncture, more in particular for individual investors, retail investors, because they don't they're not beholden to, uh, you know, quarterly uh, earnings uh, in in terms of how their company's doing. There's more ability to outperform. One thing that I would point out is is that if you look at charts of say the U.S. 10-year uh, Treasury and you look at a S&P 500 chart, what you'll see is is that we're no no we're nowhere near the levels on the U.S. Treasury that we were uh, a, a month ago. A month ago we were below 70, well below 70 you know, somewhere around this uh, 67 basis points level. Now we're at about 77 basis points, uh, yeah. even after coming off from a high above 80 some. Yeah. The S&P is actually lower now today than it was a month ago. So what that says to me is, is if you're a 60, 40 investor and you're investing through this level of choppiness, you're not going to be compensated in fixed income for the losses that you incur in equities. This is something that we've been talking about a lot on yeah. RV, is, is, is that when interest rates are really low, uh, bonds uh, fail to operate as a hedge against what's happening on the other parts of your portfolio. Or on your portfolio. So you're gonna take a lot more of the hit on equities, and we just have to hope that the hit is, is, is less and then we have to decide: uh, Do we think the Fed's going to come in and and uh, you know pull the ripcord? And is that going to have any impact on what the eventual outcome is? Yeah, when you're at whatever the low was, uh, what was it like thirty-one basis points on the ten uh, sometime in uh, looks like March? You know, there's just no, there's just not a whole lot of room for price appreciation in that portfolio. Yeah, so I think that what we'll see is 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 that. If we get more than just these past four days, we get like you know a a February to March sort of uh, uh, action, then uh, you know bonds are not going to uh, to help you as much as they did in the past, just because yields are as low as they are. And by the way, when I mentioned Mar February to March, that time frame, I think if you think of it from an economic perspective, think of right now as being February. You know, if you think about the first wave hitting mm. the United States in the February timeframe, all the signs were there 
that, you know, uh, that wave was going to come and it was going to crescendo. Uh, you know, we were getting the coronavirus cases going up. There weren't as many tests there, so we didn't know. Now we know we have much more tests. I believe that, uh, you know, we are going to see an exponential increase in hospitalizations and deaths. And, uh, and then it's going to have an impact on markets. And then the question is, is uh, you know, uh, what do policymakers do? Uh, from a federal perspective, I don't see any stimulus happening anytime soon. Uh, from a shutdown perspective in the United States, I don't see a, a shutdown happening on a national level anytime soon. Trump's already said, you know, he's against those kinds of policies. So, you know, it's going to be the Fed riding to the rescue, and then uh, they'll do so against the backdrop of the uh, insolvency phase of this particular cycle, the one that Raoul's been talking about. So that's where we are right now, you know, from a paradigm, a macro paradigm perspective. Yeah. And if the Fed comes riding to the rescue, they're going to do so kicking and screaming and pointing figures and asking for help uh, from Congress, which doesn't seem to be forthcoming. No, yeah, and I, I think if you're a longer, if you take a longer term uh, uh, view, the question is: is can the Fed uh, stave off the insolvency phase uh, enough to protect investors from the losses that bonds won't be able to uh, to protect them from? Um, meaning, you know, is the Fed's intervention going to be enough? Uh, in the way that it was in March. That's the big question that people are asking. Because as you rightly state, you know, the Fed's reactive. They're going to wait until the carnage is there. The carnage is already starting to pile up. How much further down do we need to go before the Fed intervenes? Uh, I would say a decent amount. But once they do intervene on the backside of that intervention, what does it look like? What does the economy look like? Uh, what do markets look like? My my view, and I think that this is purely speculative at this point, is it looks worse than it did in uh, the first wave in terms of the ability uh, for uh, risk assets, junk bonds, and uh, equities to be to bounce back uh, immediately. So it's looking more like uh, this this interregnum, this six month period, uh, is much more of a uh, a head fake, and that potentially you know, we, uh, we're going to see some more uh, downside risk here. Yeah, I hope it doesn't literally become an interregnum with a period between two kings in dispute. Uh, that's really the worst nightmare scenario coming out of, uh, of, of, of uh, November 3rd. And that's, you know, at this point, uh, not the most likely possibility when you look at the math, but it is a possibility that you could get either, uh, you know, a, a totally deadlocked electoral college vote, uh, or you could have too close to call in a number of key states uh, that might delay the outcome. Now, that's not a base case scenario, but it was something that happened in 2000. And if you look at the the polling data, uh, especially the poll of poll data, it does appear that those races, uh, many in those key swing states, are closing. Yeah, I would say that that's a tradable event in the sense that uh, yeah, there might be volatility around that over the short to intermediate term, but it'll it'll work itself out by January. If you're looking at it, it just depends on what your time horizon as a trader or investor is. If you're right. looking at it over a longer period of time, by the time we get to January the 20th, I'm fairly confident that we'll have it worked out. And then the question is, uh, you know, what does the real economy look like at that point in time, given the the policy uh, a framework that we've put into place? I think that the 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 real downside risk, the real tail risk, is is that things spiral out of control economically during that period enough such that 
you know, just the intervention of the Fed won't be enough. There won't be enough fiscal, you know, bankruptcies will start to pile up. Uh, commercial real estate will start to implode, things of that nature, and that you can't recover from that because it's too far gone. That That's the real tail risk. I would say it's actually more than a tail risk. It's probably a reasonable worst case scenario at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Department of Treasury coordinating with the House, obviously two different parties here. This is really sticky uh, on the fiscal side to getting a political outcome. You know, I think it was thought uh, by many that we would get a deal. It didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, um, so let, let's just say that that uh, there is a lot of volatility with regard to uh, the election. And, you know, uh, you're able to trade around that. And uh, and then, you know, come January the 20th, we we have a government in place in the U.S. What if that government is a divided government as it is today? You know, uh, th- that's a scenario in which the, the stimulus is not going to be able to be a, a, a safety basket. Again, it will mean that the Fed is is on the hook for doing any and all things necessary to prevent uh, worst case scenarios. So that's not a good scenario. Uh, so I think the quicker that we come to an understanding about what the configuration is, the more likely we are to be able to uh, have a, an understanding of what it looks like. From a risk perspective, in terms of downside versus upside risk, I think the upside is probably in uh, a, a scenario where the parties are the same, the biggest risk to the downside is where the parties are different and that there's some sort of gridlock because that's a scenario in which the policy response in the U.S. is going to be more limited. And given my view that we're going to see epidemic levels of coronavirus contagion and death, that's uh, that's not a good uh, recipe. That's not a good uh, you know uh, intersection. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, you know, you talk about the Fed being kind of the ultimate backstop, the lender of last resort function, the backstop of last resort for the for the country. Uh, you know, in many ways, if we remember Jay Powell, Jerome Powell, when he came into office early on, basically said, hey, we're not going to do that kind of thing anymore. That's not what I'm here to do when I'm running the Fed. Reality on the ground uh, said otherwise. And, uh, and he had to make those difficult decisions, which ultimately look, frankly, a lot more like what we saw in the past than not like what we saw in the past. Meaning the Powell Fed looks a lot more like the Yellen Fed, I think, than uh, Mr. Powell had anticipated. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, my last uh, thoughts uh, here for today are that you and I were probably thinking to a degree about what happens in six days. But uh, I'm really more concerned about what happens in six weeks, uh, specifically with regard to the coronavirus cases, uh, how that transformation occurs. I believe we're on the cusp of you know, a major spike. Uh, we're on the cusp of something that is akin to or could potentially be worse than the first wave. Certainly in Europe, uh, you know, places like France, it can be and probably will be. Macron was saying that this is the case. Uh, worse. Uh, and then we just have to see what happens, what the policy response is. But at a minimum, consumers will react uh, and they will react negatively. And uh, 
And so that's uh, that's considerable downside risk. I think a double dip is a foregone conclusion now in Europe. They're back to May 2020 levels. And the U.S. is is next to consider uh, over that six weeks that I'm talking about. So uh, to be continued. Sorry that I'm 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 the doom and gloomer here today, the way that you were on Monday, but that's how I see it. Yeah, it just it just feels like there's a tremendous amount of risk, and the the really staggering part when you look at Western democracies is just how poorly everyone has prepared for it. it you know, it, it's this feeling of of like being in college, and you get assigned a term paper at the beginning uh, of the semester, and uh, you know, lo and behold, it's three days before it's due, and you haven't written it yet, and there's like this feeling of surprise, like this was should have been entirely predictable. I had kind of a, a moment yesterday. I ran out uh, from the uh, from the apartment, ran down to the pharmacy on the corner and uh, on my block. I, what's that? You got some hair dye and, and uh, deodorant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they let me out occasionally to buy hair dye and deodorant. And, uh, you know, I have a uh, little like urgent care uh, facility uh, on my block. And I often go there for, you know, sore throat or whatever. And as I'm walking down the street, going to the pharmacy, I see there's this enormous line of people I don't know, eight, 10, 12 people stacked up six feet apart, standing out in front of the doctor's office, waiting to be seen for, you know, whatever was wrong with him. And you think about that here in New York City, you know, if we get a second wave and the predictions uh, and analysis that you've put forth comes true, you can imagine this when it's, you know, when it's 22 degrees out and, you know, snowing and you have people who are sick and you've got additional seasonal flu and you have people stacked up outside of doctor's offices waiting to get in, it's a pretty grim scenario. Well, you know, uh, uh, let me let me uh, give you the silver lining. I didn't think about it before you talked about Western democracies. But one overlooked thing in all of this, honestly, is, is Asia, East Asia yeah. in particular. East Asia is doing incredibly well relative to the rest of the world. Yeah. If the things that you and I are talking about are true, then eventually there's going to be a travel ban. They're going to ban us from going there. And we'll see how well their economies do under those circumstances. But if you had to take a relative value trade, it would be, you know, long emerging markets, Eastern Asian emerging markets, you know, short developed markets in Europe and North America. Yeah, it does feel like the West. And that was why I pointed it out, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Eastern Asia, uh, there has been some incredible progress that that, that the, some of those countries have made. So some of the largely smaller countries, uh, uh, Taiwan being an obvious example, uh, South Korea, um, it, you know, well-defined borders, island nations, easier to restrict travel. Uh, but nonetheless, it's hard to feel as though uh, the U.S. and Western democracies in general are anything but laggards in this scenario. Yeah. Uh, with that, I think uh, we'll have to leave it on that on that sour note. But, you know, uh, bullish Asia, East Asia. Well, let me just switch gears here real quick before we leave to talk about something that has held up rather well. Uh, Bitcoin up still over 13,000 despite the sell offs uh, in U.S. equity markets. It seems as though we've had uh, something of a, an inverse correlation. It, the, it's, it's off about 3.5% when you look at it over a 24 hour sliding window because uh, the time horizons trade differently than U.S. equities. Uh, but the reality is that as U.S. equities have sold off, uh, digital assets, especially Bitcoin, have managed to retain value and look uh, like something uh, of a safe haven trade. 
Yeah, interesting because, you know, when you were talking to Tony, both of you recognize that there's been no movement on the currency front. And that's that's very positive for uh, Bitcoin because, uh, you know, but in the past, when we saw the, the strong dollar Bitcoin, uh, you know, people were liquidating their positions in gold and Bitcoin because of the liquidity crisis. But, yeah. you know, Bitcoin is doing incredibly well. I think crypto is a, a play to watch for sure. Yeah. Uh, by the way, talking of mea culpas, I have to issue my nerdiest mea culpa yet. I said yesterday uh, that I owned a small amount of Bitcoin uh, in my brokerage account through an exchange traded product. Not strictly true. It is OTCQX traded. So it's an ATX, uh, ATS traded security registered with the SEC, but technically not exchange traded. We got to get you uh, into the coin. Brow, he, he's going to want to speak to you about that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I got teased a little bit uh, about the fact that I don't actually own uh, the underlying uh, the underlying crypto myself and I don't control the keys. Interesting conversation, probably a longer conversation for another day. Yeah. So for Friday, uh, I'll, I'll make sure to ping round and make sure that he gives you a hard time about that. Yeah, I hear we're doing something special on Friday. Yeah, uh, you I, I hear that you're going live. Is that right? That's the rumor. I guess we've committed to it now. So I guess it's going to happen. Excellent. Good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So live on YouTube, Rao Powell, Ash Bennington, Friday, be there or be square. Live without a net. Thanks for joining us, Ed. <laughs> you bet. Good to talk to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.